All right, here we are. And uh, we've been doing a red letter study. And for those of you who don't know, the red letter study is going through the words of Jesus um, that are sometimes printed in red ink in some editions of the Bible just to set it off from all the other words. Um, What we're trying to do, though, is really look at what Jesus said from this Hebrew-Aramaic point of view so that we understand as close as we possibly can what he meant. Because like it or not, we've got 2,000 years of accretion. Don't you love that word? Accretion. Stuff layered over on top of the sayings of Jesus, as his first followers would have understood it in his language, in that culture, in that worldview, and so on and so forth. So we're trying to end run 2,000 years, get back as close as we can to recreating, not directly Jesus' intent, because that's impossible, but what his followers, first followers, would have understood by his words as they dropped into their minds. And if he didn't correct them, if he didn't redefine the words he was using, then that was okay with him. So that's what we're trying to recreate and, uh, and learn from so we can learn what it is we're really doing here when we say we're trying to follow Jesus. Um, the last few weeks have been about healings and especially about Jesus accepting before the healing. Now, in that culture, you didn't get accepted back into community until after you were healed, and it was proven that you were healed by going to the temple priest and going through a week-long cleansing and purification ceremony. So without that, you still couldn't re-enter the community, and any kind of infirmity would get you exercised, exorcised, you know. You would be outside the, the gates of the city if you had a skin disease, and you would be precluded from being able to just be part of the community in the way that people were when they were whole. And there was an assumption that if you had some kind of malady, that it was because you sinned, your parents sinned, somebody sinned that caused that problem. And so there was a, there was a moral valence to it, not just a physical one. And so with all that being said, here's Jesus touching the leper before he heals him, forgiving the paralytic before there's any sign of repentance, and calling a tax collector, you know, no less, to follow him and agreeing to eat in his home before there is any restitution, any amends, any changes on Levi's part. And so this is all back to front. This is all out of order. Jesus was making himself ritually unclean by having any connection with these people before they were healed. What we're talking about here is grace, and we can't underestimate this. What Jesus is trying to show us here, the the emphasis that he's placing on this kind of acceptance, completely indiscriminate acceptance, even unjust acceptance, that degreeless love that we're always talking about, is front and center. If we don't get that, we're not going to get anything that Jesus is talking about. That is the first piece That is the foundational framework on which everything else is going to be built. We've got to get this piece. Now, I know that grace and God's love has become kind of ubiquitous, uh, especially lately in the last few years and and so on and so forth. It's become like kind of a meme, you know, it's just everywhere, a cliché. It's also becoming a rallying cry for those who are opposing traditional Christian faith. They're going to go to the God's love side to oppose the the rituals and the practice and the doctrine that they find so objectionable. But for all of this talk about grace, 
Who is it that's really taking it to its radical conclusion? Who is taking this idea of grace? And what's grace, right? Unmerited favor is the usual definition that you'll find in your, in your books. It's something that you get for nothing. And we know that doesn't work in life, right? There are no free lunches in life. But with Jesus, there are. This unmerited favor, this absolute acceptance before you do anything to deserve it or earn it is a cornerstone of what Jesus is trying to show us about his Father. And for all the talk that we do, where is the evidence that is actually taking hold in us? You know, Jesus' narrow way that he talks about, that there's a narrow way to life and few go by it, and there's a broad path to destruction and most people go that way, that's still in play. Nothing has changed. Look at all the dysfunction that there is in our world. Look at how many people are hurting so much. I'm counseling constantly people who are stressed and anxious and depressed, burned out, having the hardest time just putting one foot in front of another. So for all this talk that we do about grace that should be infilling us and and renewing us and regenerating us, there's not a lot of it in evidence in our lives around us. Why don't we get it? Why is it so hard for us to get this point that Jesus is making over and over again? I don't know. Is it because maybe we're not unforgiven enough? Have we not done bad enough things that the sense of being forgiven for those without any effort on our part has the impact that it would have if it was somebody else? Remember the the parable that Jesus tells to Simon, the Pharisee, when when Simon is criticizing him for letting the, the woman who was the greatest sinner in her village touch his feet? Jesus tells a parable of two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Now, 500 denarii in that culture would be an amount that you could never repay in your lifetime. Okay, you just have to understand the amount of money. That would be like millions of dollars to us. We couldn't possibly repay that. And the other was 50. Okay, that would be a big debt, but it's something that you could repay. This creditor just takes pity on them and forgives them both. And Jesus says, which one is going to love him more? And Simon says, well, the one he forgave more. Because, yeah, he judged correctly. And, of course, he's talking about this woman who was the worst sinner in the, in the village, right? She's going to have that gratitude. She's going to have that kind of appreciation and love. So is it that we're not unforgiven enough? We haven't done bad enough things that, that, uh, that uh, we feel that kind of release? We feel that gratitude for the grace that's been given us? Or it because, is it because we don't feel forgiven at all? We haven't gotten to that place. And there could be psychological reasons for this, obviously. When we think about Levi, we talked about last week, tax collector, one of the most hated people in Jewish culture in the first century, just being called by Jesus as he walks by his tax booth. What would that have meant to him, to have that kind of acceptance? We talked about David, King David, a thousand years before, always known as God's beloved, even though he committed adultery and even though he committed murder and even though he did all the things that he did and had too much blood on his hands to build the temple, and yet he was always God's beloved. Why? Because he was a good guy? Because he kept showing up to God. Every time we show up to God, we are the beloved. We're as beloved as we possibly can be. We are God's best friend every time we show up, and so is every one of you. 
God can have an infinite number of best friends. What is it about us that we don't get this main point that Jesus is trying to get across to us? I want to bring in a person today that you may or may not have heard of who also fits this bill, and his name is Brennan Manning. And uh, I had, 30 years ago, when I was starting my journey, I had six mentors, and they were all Catholic priests, which is ironic. I grew up Catholic, and so I was very comfortable with, with priests and Catholicism, and I still revere Catholicism today. But at the time, I had landed in an evangelical church for the first time who thought that Catholics weren't even Christians. So there's, there's, there was that, right? But it seemed like for the direction that I was going after being in this church for a while, everything that started to inform me was coming from Catholics. I went to a retreat center, Sarah Retreat in Malibu, and spent time up there and befriended two priests there, one a diocesan priest and the other uh, Franciscan, who was also the retreat's uh, director. And they would spend time with me, and we would talk. And I was getting this other perspective that my heart and soul were yearning for, that I knew in my depth and my core that was correct, but I, I didn't have permission to articulate it, didn't have permission to believe it. But here were these men, you know, who could say the words that I needed to hear. And then there was another one, an American Catholic priest. And they are in, American Catholics are in schism with Rome, so you know, priests can marry and divorcees can still have communion and things like that that is tough for uh, traditional Catholics. And I thought, okay, maybe this is the way for, for me and for us. And I met with Father Erskine. I still remember his name even though I met him only once. But he actually introduced me to Brennan Manning. So I met Brennan Manning on that day when Father Erskine, after I'm pouring out my stuff to him for long enough, and he says, how much time you got? I said, I got time. He says, want to take a drive? Sure. So he takes me to a Catholic bookstore, and he just starts pointing at uh, book covers. And one of them was Brennan Manning, Ragamuffin Gospel, which is brand new, off the, hot off the press at that time in the early 90s. Um, and he pointed to Henry Nowen, and he pointed to Thomas Merton, and he pointed to Thomas Akempis and, and uh, Augustine. And I just bought everything that he pointed at and walked out with, you know, $150 worth of books or whatever it was, which in the 1990s, early 90s was a lot of money, right? But I bought everything. And Brennan Manning's Ragamuffin Gospel just hit me in the face like a ton of bricks. Because I'd never heard God's love expressed the way Brennan Manning expressed it. It was this whole different quality to it. I'd always heard it with conditions. I'd always heard it through a legal lens. And here it was, completely different. The way that Jesus is trying to get across to us, if we really look at what he's saying beneath what we think we know already. What was it about Brennan Manning that allowed him to be able to get a glimpse, get his arms around God's love in such a way that he could write about it the way that he did, which 30 years ago was a big deal. Now we hear it all the time, but back then he was one of the lone voices crying in the wilderness about this, and that's why it hit me so hard. How did he know grace? How did he come to know that? He wrote a, a memoir in uh, 2011. It was only a couple of years before he died. He died in, in uh, 2013. <laughs> I always hoped that I was going to meet him someday. You know, he and Henry Nowen were, were both alive. Henry Nowen was in Toronto, and who knows where Brendan Manning was? He was always someplace. But I always thought somehow I'd meet them. And 
They both died on me. But uh, they live on in their books. He had a terrible childhood. He tells about it in his memoir. You know, he had an abusive father. He had a very cold and, and just kind of absent mother. His best friend as he, when he was a boy, the one that he really connected with in the midst of all the chaos of his home of origin, died while he was still a kid. And that completely devastated Brennan. They lived in grinding poverty. He was born in 1934, so this is, he's, a, he's a Great Depression baby. And so they're living in this poverty, and everything is being taken away from him as a child. By the time he was 18, this is what he tells about his drinking, that he was drinking 12 beers a night. He was drinking a pint, a pint of rye every other day and a liter of sake a week. Sake? Really? Okay. Twelve beers, a pint of rye, a liter of sake. He learned this shame as a boy in a way that maybe a lot of us haven't, who haven't lived in such difficult circumstances. But he was living that constant fear. He was living that constant experience of disconnection, that constant experience of being unacceptable because his parents didn't accept him. They couldn't. They were too much in their own dysfunction. And the one who does is taken from him. And so how does he compensate? Well, he compensates by drinking. So many of us have used something. We just talked about it. Everybody's recovering from something, right? If it's not substance abuse, then it's going to be a process addiction. It's going to be something that we need to use to be able to paper over the potholes in our life, the, the unfinished business that we haven't dealt with. And so he learned this shame really well as a young boy. And when you do that, you have two directions that you can go. You can continue to repeat the sins of the father, right? The sins of your parents. You can just mirror what they do and go down that same road. Or you can try to go the other way and become the good child. The one who does everything right. The one that is trying to earn something better, right? Earn that acceptance. And Brennan really did both. He was an alcoholic who went to church each and every Sunday hung over from the night before, but he went and he kept showing up. And he was trying to be that good child, even with everything that was going on. But the problem with being the good child is, is that it just becomes another addiction to something else that you're doing to try to paper over the problems until it becomes an inward transformation. When that happens, then everything can change. But when you're chasing it from the outside in, it doesn't work. It doesn't help us. We're still recovering from something. So he was able to escape by joining the military. He joined the Marine Corps, and he served in Korea, in the Korean War. And when he came back, and came back to, at this point, Pennsylvania, western Pennsylvania, he has a story that he tells about being in this little chapel in western Pennsylvania where he was ambushed by God. He had an experience that was so strong, so powerful, so real to him that everything that he thought he knew about Christianity became an intimate personal relationship with Jesus at that moment. And of course, that had a huge and profound change with him. He went to schools that were run by the Franciscans and he eventually joined the Franciscan order and he was ordained as a priest. And then he joined a ministry 
come up, was based in France. That was a contemplative ministry that experienced their contemplation in extreme poverty. He joined this this uh, this other order. It wasn't even an order. It was just a, a, a group of brethren because he was still a Franciscan and a priest at this time. And so he goes to Europe and he's, he's ministering with these people and doing all sorts of really wild stuff. I mean, he was transporting water by donkey. I mean, this is the way that they operated. And uh, he was a stonemason for a while. He spent six months in a cave in the deserts of Spain um, just practicing contemplation. So this is really extreme stuff that he was doing as he was trying to get a foothold on what this relationship meant, right? And so he's doing all these things, and then he comes back again. And of course, he's still drinking all this time, right? He comes back to the, the United States, and he begins his writing career. He had seven books written before uh, Ragamuffin Gospel was published in 1990. So he was doing a lot of writing, and that was another outlet for him. And then he finally went into rehab and decided he needed to confront his drinking. And he did. He became sober, and he held that for 15 years. He left the priesthood, though, because he fell in love in New Orleans. And uh, so he, le- he fell, fell in love, falls in love. He marries uh, this woman after he leaves the priesthood. And then he relapses again after 15 years of sobriety. He was married in 1982. At this time, he was already getting some notoriety. He was doing a lot of speaking engagements, um, different cities all around. And he had a pattern. He had his, his way of doing things. He would go and do his speaking engagement. He would immediately check into a motel and he would unplug the phone, and he would just drink, sometimes for days. And then he would sober up enough to go to the next city and do it all over again. And he was avoiding his wife throughout this whole process, because he didn't really, you know, don't want your wife to know what it is you're doing. And he tells a story about waking up in the gutter one morning in New Orleans with an empty pint of something at his side, laying in his own vomit, and wish waking up and he doesn't remember anything about how he got there. And a friend comes and sees him and takes him to rehab again, yet again to rehab. And all the while that he's doing this writing and writing these beautiful and amazing things, and all the time that he's doing these speaking engagements and teaching others, he's still in the midst of his addiction. He's still in the midst of all of this pain. You know? And then he was divorced in the year 2000. 18 years of marriage. This is a difficult life. A life that is inconsistent, right? A life that is hard for us to sometimes figure out how maybe what he wrote was valid because of what he was going through at the same time. And this is what's difficult for us to process sometimes. Shame is a really sneaky and pervasive thing. It doesn't go away when the shameful things go away. See, that's the problem. What we learn as a child in the homes where shame is imprinted in us, when we leave the home and we go to the military or we go do whatever we do, we think, okay, the circumstances have changed. My mode of operation should change as well. It doesn't. All of that is imprinted down there deep in our unconscious, and it stays with us. And it instills in us this deep sense of unworthiness, this pain, this fear that eventually has to be confronted because as long as it is driving the bus in our lives, it is keeping us from connection. It's keeping us from everything that we need in order to feel fulfilled 
in order to be able to step beyond all the obsessive compulsive behavior. So for all of his success, Brendan Manning, the learning that he had done, the teaching that he was doing, he was still shameful. There was that shameful boy still in him deep down. So does that make me admire him less because I know this about him now? Absolutely not. Actually, it makes me admire him more. That he had the audacity, he had the perseverance and the courage to keep showing up as imperfect as he knew he was with the secrets that he was keeping, to keep showing up and doing what he believed in. He believed in the words that he was writing and speaking. But he was still not healed from the pain himself. I admire him more because I know what he went through. In fact, we named our youngest son after Brennan. Brennan. Brennan Brisbane. Now, there was another reason, too. We had three children before that all had Gaelic names that ended with N. Caitlin, Megan, and Sean. So we needed another one. I said, I know. But it was. It was an homage to, to Brendan Manning for me because he was so foundational in my life. When I read about Brendan Manning's life, when I realized what it was that he went through, the patterns that he went through, I understood it deeply myself. My story is not going to be as dramatic as his. I didn't spend a cave, you know, a, a half a year in a cave in Spain. I didn't drink the way he drank. But I know what he's talking about. I know what it means to try to be the good child. I know what it means to try to earn your place in life. And I know what it means to show up and feel like the imposter. I know a lot of you do too because I hear that so much. To feel like you're not adequate. To feel like if people really knew me, you know, they'd run screaming from the room. I know what that feels like but yet to keep showing up and keep at it to find out whether people are going to leave or whether they're going to stay. I know that feeling. I know what that's like. And I'm still struggling now. You think my stone is smooth yet? Absolutely not. It's a process. But it's a lot smoother now than it was 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Brennan was deeply flawed. You know, he would break through and then he would relapse and he kept repeating that cycle. But he kept showing up, just like David kept showing up to be God's beloved. Because one thing Brennan did learn was that every time he showed up to God's presence in a contemplative way, God was just as present to him as he ever was. It didn't matter to God what mattered to Brennan and all of the rest of us as we look at lives and we judge them, our own and the others around us. God is not operating that way. At least he had experienced that. I want to read just a couple of quotes, and they're in your handouts if you want to follow along. Uh, the first two are from the Ragamuffin Gospel. But he writes, Because salvation is by grace through faith, I believe that among the countless number of people standing in front of the throne and in front of the Lamb, dressed in white robes and holding palms in their hands, as in Revelation 7-9, he says, I shall see there in that throne room, right, with God, I shall see the prostitute from the Kit Kat Ranch in Carson City, Nevada, who tearfully told me that she could find no other employment to support her two-year-old son. I shall see the woman who had an abortion and is haunted by guilt and remorse, 
but did the best she could faced with grueling alternatives. The businessman besieged with debt who sold his integrity in a series of desperate transactions. The insecure clergyman addicted to being liked who never challenged his people from the pulpit and longed for unconditional love. The sexually abused teen molested by his father and now selling his body on the street who as he falls asleep each night after his last trick whispers the name of the unknown God he learned about in Sunday school. My friends, if this is not good news to you, you have never understood the gospel of grace. Indelible images he's painting here. The word we study has to be the word we pray. My personal experience of the relentless tenderness of God came not from exegetes or theologians or spiritual writers, but from sitting still in the presence of the living word and beseeching him to help me understand with my head and my heart his written word. Sheer scholarship alone cannot reveal to us the gospel of grace. We must never allow the authority of books, institutions, or leaders to replace the authority of knowing Jesus Christ personally and directly. When the religious views of others interpose between us and the primary experience of Jesus as the Christ, we become unconvicted and unpersuasive travel agents, handing out brochures to places we have never visited. You've got to love that image. And then from Abba's Child, another one of his books, define yourself radically as the one beloved by God. This is the true self. Every other identity is illusion. See, these are the kinds of things that hit me in the face 30 years ago when I'd never heard them before. And it was just like a salve. It was just this amazing comfort that someone else was saying what I think my spirit knew already, but didn't have permission to believe. Brennan realized the allness of this grace, that it is everything. It was everything that mattered. Or maybe a better way of saying it is that nothing else matters without grace. What matters if we're not accepted for who we are right now, if we still have to earn something? Nothing else matters without grace. And grace is the only thing that we need to know about God. It comes down to this one thing. If we know that one bit about God, then everything else is going to be added. It's the same thing Jesus said, seek first the kingdom and God's righteousness. What is God's righteousness? Grace. Unmerited favor. If you seek that first, then everything else is added. And yet, even knowing that, Brennan still struggled his entire life. And it's a pattern that we see. Mother Teresa, when her letters were revealed to her spiritual director in the, well, 15 years ago, realized how much she struggled throughout her life. And that was a shock to so many of us. It was a shock when Brendan Manning's memoir came out and what he was going through, because you don't see it in their ministries and in their work. But St. John of the Cross... And so many of the mystics, they have the same story. They have the same pattern in their lives. They're not perfect. They still struggle. They haven't papered over the shame. They haven't released it, but they keep showing up. And every time they do, 
they're the beloved one of God. And that's what they know. That's what they're learning. My six mentors, my six priests, you know, three living and three in print. I guess five were living and one was gone. Merton was gone for 20 years. But the other five, at least I met three of them. They were all trying to tell me the same thing over and over and over again. And yet, even though it was still 10 years before I felt I had my breakthrough, where I had my ambush, where I started to finally feel, oh, that's what they're talking about? That's what this is? I've been banging my head against it for so long, for 10 solid years until my early 40s. And then it's like, okay, I finally get it. And of course, it didn't change me overnight, but it's been changing me ever since. 10 long years. Those of you who have been in our Practicing the Presence book study, you know, the Brother Lawrence went through the same 10 years of his monastic life, banging his head against the wall before God's presence finally broke through to him. It takes time. It's not something that we can just flip a switch in our head or read it in a book and agree to it mentally and think it's going to change things. It has to just seep down into our core. And that just takes showing up over and over and over. Are you willing to keep showing up even though you don't feel any difference at the beginning? Are you willing to do that? Make yourself vulnerable again and again. If you are, everything happens. Everything changes. I remember sitting in uh, one of the sessions with Emery Tang, who was the uh, Franciscan, who was a retreat director. And I know some of you have heard this story before. But he was asking this group of crusty old guys that came back to the same weekend every year from their parish uh, and their diocese. And, uh, and he's teaching them. And he finally says, why did Jesus come? He's trying to break through to these guys, you know? They're, they're just sitting there as they have for 40 years in their Baltimore catechism. Why did Jesus come? You know, and they all raised their hands and gave him the Baltimore Catechism answer. He came to die for our sins. <laughs> and I still remember um, Emery Tang had a, a sh- completely shaved noggin, completely shaved head, and he had these huge hands, and he, he would put his hands on his head when he was frustrated, and he would like wrap around twice almost, it seemed like. But he had his hands on his head, and he's shaking his head, and he said, no, Jesus didn't come to die for our sins. What kind of father sends his son to die, Right? Jesus came to show us perfect love. He came to show us perfect love. He was trying to get this across to them. He was trying to get it across to me. It was such a difficult thing to understand because we have been taught that Jesus came to save us from sin. Haven't we? That's what it's all about. Until we're saved from sin, until we're healed, we're not acceptable. So he's coming to save us from sin, and he has to do that himself on the cross. And then, and only then, will our angry Father in heaven finally allow us in the door once that debt has been paid. That's what we've been taught as traditional Christians for 2,000 years, that Jesus came to save us from sin. That's not what Jesus was doing. Not what I'm convinced of, anyway. Jesus came to save us from shame. That's why Jesus came. Because to lose our shame, to lose that fear of disconnection, as Brene Brown defines it, is to lose our fear of disconnection. When we lose shame, we're losing our fear of disconnection. To lose our fear of disconnection is to lose the sense of separation that we carry around with us and have been carrying around since we were children often. 
which is the definition of sin. Sin is not unlawful behavior. Sin is the separation that certain behavior creates, whether it's lawful or not. If anything you're doing is creating separation, creating distance between you and those you love, it's sinful because it's missing the mark of God's best, which is always unity, always oneness, perfect connection. And if anything you're doing is creating better connection, that's righteous, whether it's lawful or not. The law is only a general guide. It's not the be-all and end-all, as we have made it out to be. To lose our fear is to lose our sense of separation. To lose our sense of separation is to lose the need for the obsessive and, be, and compulsive and disconnecting behavior that we're caught in, in cycles over and over again, whatever it happens to be. Those thought and behavior patterns that we call sinful because they continue to separate us, they're only there because fear makes them necessary. Lose the fear you will lose the need for that behavior that keeps you separated and in the state of sin. Jesus came to save us from shame. Not a legal understanding of salvation, but a relational one. If you think about it, it's kind of a long way home, right? We want to take the straight path. I'm just going to get this, this ticket. I'm saved from my sin and I get to go in. No. This is going to be the long way home, but it's the only way to the Father. Jesus tells us over and over again, a Father who already accepts us. You know, Because what does law mean to someone who has already accepted you? What does putting on the fig leaf of the law have anything to do with a person who has already accepted you completely as you are right now? What does law have to do with someone who is forgiveness personified? who is love personified, who is that. What does law have to do with any of that? But it's the long way home because to save us from sin is passive. It just happens to us and then we're acceptable almost magically, right? But to save us from shame is active. Now we have to kick in. We need to do the work. We need to do the work of relinquishing those old core beliefs layer by layer, step by step, day by day, moment by moment, until we finally get to a place where we have assimilated that enough that is starting to change the attitude that we have toward life, starting to change the nature of our relationships, starting to allow us to finally experience the sense of worthiness of connection that can only be gotten by experiencing connection, acceptance, and then to stop these fearful and disconnecting thought and behavior patterns. But it's the only way that it works. To just say that you're saved from sin is still to live in that disconnection, live in that fear, as Brendan Manning did for his entire life. So the question then becomes, for many of us, when we're thinking along these lines, is this really true? Did Jesus really come to save us from shame and not sin? And if so, why have we gotten it wrong for 2,000 years? Now, there's a lot of reasons for that that we're not going to get into today. But to lose the shame is to lose the sin. It ends the sin. What was Jesus' main focus? Was it sin or was it shame? And I think Jesus shows us his priority through the choices he makes. Remember the leper and the paralytic and, the, and Levi, the calling of Levi. What did Jesus do? 
If he was so legally oriented, he would have healed first, gone through, had, had the, the leper go through what he needed to go through at the temple and the, and, the, and the priests, and then he would be accepted. Jesus touches him first, risks his own infection, makes himself unclean to show that the connection is there no matter what because it's the shame that needs to be eradicated before anything else can happen. When the paralytic is lowered through the hole in the roof, son, your sins are forgiven. He calls him son. That term of intimacy, of familial connection. And he recognizes that he is already in a state of grace. He is already connected to these four friends who brought him. He has community. He's not disconnected. He is very connected. He has good friends, which means he is a good friend, or he wouldn't have good friends. Your sins are forgiven. There's nothing broken here except your legs. Well, we can do something about that, but that's almost parenthetical, right? And then the call of Levi. He's still doing what he does and has done as a tax collector, ripping people off, making them crazy. Come, follow me jumps right over any kind of restitution, any kind of repentance. Jesus is showing us over and over and over again. It's about acceptance and connection that never, never is compromised from God's point of view. Because if we can lose the shame, we can lose the sin, the sinful behaviors that keep us disconnected, touch before healing, forgiveness before repentance, the call and acceptance before the purity. Remember what we read last week. Let's just read it real quickly so we can get this in our heads. Luke 5, verse 27. After that, Jesus went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And Levi left everything behind and got up and began to follow Jesus. And Levi gave a big reception for Jesus in his house, and there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. A great crowd of tax collectors and sinners because no self-respecting Jew was going to be in that house. Only the riffraff were there because they were the only ones who could be there and not become ritually unclean. But Jesus goes and goes inside the house and eats with them which was in that culture a sign of a covenant, a contract, a connection. It was more than just sharing food. It was letting them into your lives in a much more intimate way. And the Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples. Why at the disciples? Because they're still out on the street. They're not going in there. They can't talk to Jesus. They'll talk to whoever was still out in the street with them. And they're saying, why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? But Jesus answers them eventually and says to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Okay, so these Pharisees, first of all, the word Pharisee means separated ones because they understood that their righteousness came from separating themselves from anything that was impure, anyone who was impure, to keep yourself away. They would literally cross the street so their robes didn't brush against someone that they considered unclean or outside the law and make themselves unclean. That's what they were all about. But Jesus is calling sinners to repentance. Well, doesn't that sound like he's focusing on sin then? First of all, he's got to be with them to do it. 
And so he's going to show his acceptance of them by going to them and touching them and eating with them in order to be able to call them to repentance. But is he saving them from sin directly? I still say no. Instead of saving them from sin, what he's really doing is showing the disconnected how to connect. That's saving a sinner from sin. Showing someone who is disconnected. How do you connect? Because sin is the disconnection and is the separation. And repentance is the changing of directions to reconnect. It's the only way to reconnect. To lose the shame that keeps you in a perpetual state of disconnection. The only way to the Father's unity. In Acts 10 and 11, Peter... This is, this is after Jesus is gone. Peter's criticized for eating with Gentiles. And he has this vision where all these unclean foods, the unkosher foods, are shown to him in a big sheet. And, and the Lord tells him, kill and eat. And he says, no, no, I never do that. You know. But God is showing him. And that vision comes multiple times. And then a Gentile comes to him, a Greek man, and says, you know, inviting him to his house. And he knows he needs to go. And he goes and he eats. Well, he's criticized for that because he is breaking the, the dietary code. And then he gets scared because of that. And so he stops eating with them again. Peter's a little bit wishy-washy here, right? You know, so first he goes and eats with them because the Lord told him. And then he backs off. And so Paul jumps all over his case in Galatians 2 and criticizes him for doing something very wrong, being a hypocrite. You know, what is it? Is he supposed to or is he not supposed to? By the law, he's not supposed to. But of course, to connect and to accept people as they really are. Ironically, he was never criticized for baptizing Gentiles, only for eating with them. So they were good enough to baptize, but not good enough to connect? What are we talking about here? What's, what's the whole point of all of this? Jesus always leads with acceptance. He always leads with grace because sin is a function of shame and not the other way around. Sin is a function of shame. Shame is the cause. Sin is the symptom. All this sinful disconnecting behavior is necessitated by the fear of the disconnection, fear of the loss. Why do we lie, cheat, steal, slander, murder? Why do we do all those things in the first place? Why does everybody do them? Because we're afraid. We're afraid of not getting something we need. We're afraid of losing something that we had. It's all about fear. If we can lose the fear, we will lose the need for the dysfunctional behavior. And God knows this. Of course God knows this. He knows we're afraid. How can we not be afraid? Little, fragile, finite creatures living this life. He knows why we act out. If we could just know for one instant how accepted we really are, that would be the beginning of our transformation. If we could just know that. But it would only be the beginning. We would have to reinforce it again and again and keep showing up if we really want to make that who we are, our true identity. If we want to unforget who we are, right? We're going to have to do that over and over again. Philip Yancey, who is a famous uh, evangelical Christian writer, made a comment on Brendan Manning's memoir back in 2011. And he asked this, posed this question, what might have been if Brennan had not given himself in to drink? What might have been if he hadn't done that? 
And he says, that's the wrong question. The real question, what might have been if Brennan never discovered grace? That's the question to ask. Because the tragedy of our lives, of anyone's life, of human life, is not the addiction that we face or any other failings that we experience in life. The tragedy of our lives is not allowing or using those failings to lead us back to grace. Out of shame. We can do that if we so choose. But we spend so much time being ashamed of our failings. And that shame makes us believe that we are not worthy of grace. But Brennan's failings, all of those falls over and over again, made him more and more acutely aware of the grace. Every time he showed back up and experienced it as if nothing else had ever happened. As a ragamuffin, and he considered himself a ragamuffin, he embraced his failings. You know what he called himself? He called himself an angel of God with an incredible capacity for beer. You gotta love somebody who says stuff like that, right? If we, if we can't embrace our imperfections, if we can't embrace our failings, if we can't embrace our vulnerability and realize that they do not matter to God's love, they never have and they never will, then we'll never be able to break through to the grace that has been freely offered every single moment of our lives. Jesus came to save us from shame to show us perfect love in human form that would obliterate that shame. And the only way to the Father that Jesus is talking about is first to believe that you're worthy of grace that is freely being offered. The truth of the matter is we're as forgiven as we want to be. We're as loved as we want to be. But it's going to take some time and to keep showing up in the midst of our imperfections to really figure that out and to allow it to change our lives. And as we've said here many times, the good news of the New Testament and the gospel is there is no bad news. Get that, you get it all. Let's pray. Ah, Father, thank you for Brennan. Thank you for a life lived so imperfectly that still gets the experience that allowed him to keep showing up to you and your presence. We are very aware of our own imperfections, Father. We know what we don't deserve. But help us to just get a piece of what Brennan had, what David had, to keep showing up in the midst of our imperfections and our failings and our shame. Don't let our shame keep us from showing up to you and to each other to let ourselves be seen so that we can prove to ourselves that you and others will love us and want to connect with us and see us as valuable and want to have us as part of their lives so that we can learn finally that we are worthy of connection 
and we can let go of the shame that keeps us in the patterns that we hate. That's it. Help us to do that, to keep showing up no matter what. Thank you for continuing to show up in our lives no matter what, Father. And never let us forget that we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.